Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with someone who knows Vegas inside and out. This is Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, the podcast. Our guest today is Meyer Lansky II. Now, if that name sounds familiar to you, it should. He is the grandson of the infamous uh, gangland mobster. The same name, everybody's heard, Meyer Lansky. Meyer talks about his grandfather quite a bit. Been a guest on a lot of shows. You've seen Maury Povich, AMC's The Making of the Mob, the A&E and the biographies of the Godfathers, and we're going to talk about that as well. Uh, Meyer, first of all, welcome. What was it like growing up as a grandson and the namesake of Meyer Lansky, who particularly in Las Vegas, everybody knows? Well, for me, uh, you know, I grew up in Tacoma, Washington. Uh, I'm a 70s kid. 1957, I was born up there. So in those days, I was kind of removed because he was back in Florida. And, uh, you know, growing up in Washington State, you really didn't hear a lot about the mob. And the first time I really realized what my grandfather was all about was about 1970 when they... uh, wouldn't let him stay in Israel. He was over there for a couple of years, and he wanted to stay with the law of return. But one day I walked in, and there's Walter Cronkite on television at night, and he's saying, Meyer Lansky tried to get off in Paraguay and Venezuela, and got right back on the plane. And that went on for about two nights to about seven different countries, and he ended up back in Miami Beach. So then I started getting pretty curious around 12 years old of who he really was. Um well, yeah, anybody that's seen The Godfather 2 always remembers the character Hyman Roth, who it was supposed to be about him. And that same thing go, happens where he you know, wanted to be in Israel, but they can't do that. So they take him back and eventually uh, gets taken in. So when, when you found all that stuff out, I, I guess that must have made you pretty curious. I, well, what, what is this? You know, the fact that this guy's been on uh, Cronkite for a couple of days, he must be pretty important. <laughs> Yes, and at that time, uh, my parents didn't really say a lot. They saw your grandfather's big hoteler back on the East Coast, and um, they like to, you know, sometimes harass people and exploit people that have money or power. And they kind of played, they just, you know, told me that they didn't get into the other part of it. You know, I didn't really know that till maybe 14, 15 years old, yeah. uh, anything to do with the mafia. But, uh, yeah, interesting enough, that really sparked my curiosity, obviously, and I started getting every book I could find, you know, to find out more about him, and uh, that that was an interesting journey in itself, you know. Well, he was a so. fascinating guy. The first person I ever really talked to about Meyer Lansky, believe it or not, was the late Al Davis. Uh, Davis was saying that the first Super Bowl the Raiders went to in uh, 68, uh, he was getting the team ready and stuff, and uh, your grandfather said, hey, you got to come out here and speak to something. And he goes, well, it wasn't really a good time, but you just didn't say no. <laughs> and, and, and actually, he spoke kind of highly of him, but he, he knew. And he did have that kind of power, right? I mean, he was somebody you didn't cross. Yeah, you know, he didn't come across as a villain. Uh, when he, he lived in Florida for quite a few years till the end of his life. And, uh, 
you know, he was a very personable, nice person to, to most, you know, people. I mean, he had, even to the FBI, I mean, I got to admit, when you, when you hear about him, he uh, was very cooperative with them, you know. He had a lot of tolerance. He always did. And I think that's one of the reasons he became so big and uh, such a, you know, big figure in his background and everything and trusted well. And uh, he just, you know, was able to uh, keep his emotions in check always. He loved talking to people. He loved sports. He was very active in everything. So, Yeah, he was really even-tempered, which I could see was a real strength with the Mafia because us Italian guys, we can get loud and <laughs> angry and so yeah. forth. And I guess he was one of those guys that could keep everybody calm because you have an organization like that. It's not good for an organization like that to be fighting among themselves. Right. They never had any, amazingly, you know, um, you know, when he met Lucky Luciano at a young age, and they became uh, very good friends, because Luciano really respected him. First of all, he, he was used to intimidating, especially Jewish kids, walking across the Italian section in New York, and he, would, he was able to get their money for them to cross. And here comes my grandfather, and that didn't happen. It went the opposite direction. So they had an instant respect for each other, and uh, they were both uh, very good at... Uh, you know, um, supervising people and keeping people uh, together, and there was there was no conflict within their organization, which was amazing. Cause you had a lot of prejudice back then. I mean, you know, the Italians didn't like the Jews coming into what was theirs, basically, but they were smart enough to get along for the greater good. You know, which right. is a pretty big deal when you think about it. Oh, absolutely. Know. Well, he worked yes. with, with Luciano and Bugsy Siegel, right? Because the, and their thing was uh, gambling, right? Or that's what they kind of developing uh, first Havana, Cuba, and then Las Vegas. Right. Exactly. Yeah, they grew up on the streets of New York City. Uh, my grandfather was uh, on the Lower East Side of New York. Ben Siegel was a little younger. They actually met at a craps game gone bad on the streets because they used to play have illegal games on the streets in New York and they were in their early teens at that time and Ben was evidently uh, in a game where they were disputing over their territory with another gang and he there was a gun drop and my grandpa jumped and said don't leave it alone here comes the police and he grabbed Ben and pulled him away from it and uh, he was actually the only one that could ever keep him under control because, you know, Ben had quite a temper and, you know, um, yeah. but that that's just the way he was. He was able to be a great mentor for people and uh, resolve disputes and personalities and everything. But they all met at about that age and grew up together and uh, became a, quite an organization, obviously, yes. <laughs> well, yeah, and he, yeah, his close association with Luciano was really important because uh, that really was the top of mob leadership, really, in the United States, so that he rose to the top. Yeah, Luciano, actually, you know, they were all fairly... Now, they, there was two bosses at the time, and they showed this in a lot of movies, um, that controlled New York City at that time. One was really kind of a, you know, ill-mannered, his name was Masseria, and the other one was... Maranzano, who was a very highly educated Italian from, they went to college and they hated each other. But, you know, my grandfather, Ben Siegel, and uh, Lucky Luciano all worked for them up to the point of 1933 when, you know, Prohibition was over. And then, of course, they took over and they kind of uh, retired those two. <laughs> <I might say. laughs> 
and uh, they took over. And my grandfather and uh, Lucky Luciano really created the American version of the mafia in New York. Well, you know, honestly, together, yeah. Well, we're we're going to delve into this a little more, but I just want to ask you: Are you fascinated by how much people love this stuff? I mean, they're interested in it, uh, and there's just something about it. Like you mentioned, the movies; these movies are almost always going to be hot. The Sopranos was a great television series. What is it? Do you think about people that drives people to this interest in it? Is it, is it doing something that they can't themselves imagine doing, or the idea of having that kind of power or over, or in a way overcoming? You know, these were all guys from the streets who overcame all this stuff to really become mm-hmm. powerful men. Um, I'll say this. I mean, it's hard to explain that. I think you know, if you ever watch Clint Eastwood and Dirty Harry. And there's times when you think, oh, my God, that's just great. <laughs> they get, you know, even for me, I, I'm looking at that and I think you want to you be like him, you know, or you watch Death Wish with uh, old Charles Bronson. He's like the justice, you know what I mean? He's, he's the guy you go to on the, when you were a kid on the playground and, you know, you used to get bullied. Right. And then there's that one kid that came over and he liked you, so he, he, he was kind of your protector. I think that's the type of feeling and interest people get when they watch mob movies there's there's a power out there that they want to hold on to yeah. and romanticize um you know and uh, they're relatable you know i mean they I, people like the way they dressed uh, they liked what they did the, the money they made they're i mean they imitate you, you hear it all the time you know the, the slogans that the mob guys say and you'll hear that you know make him an offer he can't refuse i mean that stuff's been going on for you know, a hundred years and you yeah. have movies out there like Godfather one and two that are classic now. And it's just American history that people love, you know? Well, and do you think part of it too is the structure? I mean, cause the, the organizations really had a structure. I mean, these were made guys, mm-hmm. what you had to do. And right. if, if you tried to veer off that thing, you could, <laughs> you could get in a lot of trouble. Sure. Yeah. No, the structure was, uh, a big thing. In fact, when they created the American Mafia, or they call it the Syndicate, actually, with Luciano and my grandfather, um, my grandfather suggested to Luciano keep some of the tradition because the young guys that are coming up are going to want to have that tradition. So there is a structure. But, you know, then they went, of course, with uh, the idea that there wouldn't be just one boss anymore. There would be a commission, and uh, they restructured everything. So everybody at the top had a say about things, you know, right. there was disputes. So yeah, that, that has a lot to do with it. People want to be a part of a structure. I mean, if you're in a corporate world, you want to be a part of a structure instead of, yeah. you know, just loose ends here and there. So they definitely had that down. Well, you mean, you've studied this all your life. When you saw the Sopranos and you watched that, did you think, wow, they really caught on to it and kind of really put it into a, a late 20th century uh, place? Yeah, you know, now every uh, period of time is a little different. I primarily stay with the early 20th century mob. Mm-hmm. I do know about, you know, the newer folks out there in the 70s and 80s, but, and it changes, you know, quite a bit throughout the generations. Now, my grandpa's time being the beginning, those men were never in the limelight. The last thing they wanted to do is have their name in the paper or be seen, you know, so it's a little different, you know, in the future you saw. There was a couple. I mean, obviously, Bugsy Benny Siegel was out there a little too much, and he ended up paying a price for it. But, uh, you know, they were the old school people. Keep a low profile. Uh, you know, don't let people know what you're doing. And, 
you know, the Omerta and uh, uh, part. But when you get up to like the 60s, 70s, things kind of varied and changed a little bit. But uh, basically, yeah, that's that was the structure, you know. We're talking about Las Vegas and so forth. Before Las Vegas was huge, on the East Coast, it was Havana. And your granddad was really involved in, in, in that and so forth. People don't realize, but Cuba was a big deal, right, at that time? I mean, everybody from really the entire East Coast, you want to gamble and do some of those things, you went to Havana. Right. Well, he knew Fugencio uh, Batista in the 30s. Uh, they were friends. And... Uh, Back in, in 57, when, you know, Batista was back in power, he called my grandfather to come over as an ambassador to the gambling and clean everything up because there was a lot of, you know, corrupt games and cheating and all that going on. My grandpa had a great reputation, by the way. He had a great following uh, from Saratoga to Miami, from, uh, you know, as being an honest person an honest game and he right. didn't cheat people and uh so he called him over there my grandfather you know worked and opened up the Vana riviera the first hotel with central air conditioning and uh a lot of the corrupt people were just uh arrested and they left <laughs> you know and he replaced it right. with, with uh, legitimate people and, and boy they had a crowd uh for three years anyway if you uh well, Watch the fi- movie The Godfather yeah. touches on it. Yeah. Well, he figured out, too, that you didn't have to cheat and so forth. If you set the stuff up right, it would bring in the cash, you know? Exactly. Yeah, there was a science to it. And it was, that would, you know, it would win anyway. The house wins. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, well, people wanted to play and have some time to play. And, you know, they uh, whether they won or lost, they knew it was legitimate, so... He must have realized, too, that when uh, Castro was coming in, like, this wasn't going to be good. I don't know. You know, he was so tied up with what he was doing on the ground. And, you know, Cat Fidel was up in the hills, and Batista kept saying, you know, yeah, it's no problem, and you're not really thinking about that too much. You know, at the time, it's um, – I know that uh, later on, you know, he started to cons- be a little concerned, you know. and uh, But I don't think up to the, almost the last moment they really – you know, my grandpa, first of all, thought that even if Fidel did come in, he could pay him off, you know, right. and he, like he did with Batista, but he, that didn't happen. So, uh, unfortunately, you know, it uh, didn't go that route. But if that would have gone that route, it would have dwarfed Las Vegas because you have 800 miles of coastline. They were already building on uh, Island of the Pines, which is now a prison. They were going to put a brand new airport in. It wasn't just the hotel. He was working on developing the whole country with casinos. So that would have been something else. I can't even imagine. (laughs) It's hard to believe. But I'm glad you brought that up, though, because Vegas is the one that uh, that really clicked. We all know the stories. I want to get the truth on it, though, because you hear stuff all the time. Every time you go by the Flamingo, people all see the uh, the Bugsy Siegel thing, and we all Mm have seen the movie with Warren Beatty. But from what I understand, the people I talk to, uh, I got the Mob Museum and such, a lot of that is myth, that it really wasn't quite like that. I mean, it's true that he got killed and stuff, but it was really more a a case of he was involved, as I understand it, with some – he was skimming off the top and – and he was spending a lot of money. Well, he was spending a lot of money. Um, there's no doubt about that. He was going over costs. You know, Ben did a great... Prior to the uh, Flamingo, mm-hmm. my uh, grandfather and Ben Siegel and a few other people invested in the El Cortez. It was available at that time. And Ben came originally out to Las Vegas from Los Angeles 
and he had the race wire with him, and he was doing pretty well with that race wire. But then he wanted a little more because right. he saw, you know, the old Rancho and the uh, Last Frontier were, was in, and people were kind of getting the fever that something big's going to happen because they, they go. Uh, so they all started saying, even May West, I'm going to build a casino. I'm going to build. So Ben jumped in. He found out the El Cortez was for sale, and he bought it. My grandfather went in with him with three or four other partners locally, and. Uh, he did a really good job. I mean, within eight months, they resold it, and they made a huge profit, and he went down to the uh, Flamingo, and he bought in. It was a, kind of a skeleton at the time. Billy Wilkerson, the original builder, needed money, and uh, they had the majority in that in that casino as kind of the framework was there. The land was purchased, and Ben, you know, built that and finished it. Uh, there were some problems, a lot of overcosts. I don't really, you know, the, the funny thing is, even being, uh, you know, one degree of separation right. from Ben Siegel, he is still a mystery. And I'm really still a fan and very curious about knowing more about him because as much as he was out there and you hear all these rumors, you can't really know. It's hard to know a lot about him. He was really secretive. Right. You know, well, the it's cons- amazing. It's still, it's a mysterious, it's, it's obscure almost to me. But, uh, you know, um, now, I was fortunate enough to get to go into his suite in 1993 that was still existing above the wedding chapel at the uh, Flamingo Hotel. And let me tell you, there was, you know, the best terrazzo, marble. He put a lot of money into that. So I think it was just his personality. At that time, he was going out with Virginia Hill, and maybe he was trying to impress her. But he went over costs on a lot of things. Um but he was a yeah, little ahead of know. his time in a way because, as you see now up and down the strip, I mean, that kind of overindulgence is smiled upon. And he kind of started that. I mean, the whole concept of the strip really came a little from the Flamingo because before that, wasn't more of the action downtown, like you said, the El Cortez and a lot of the places down there? Yeah, the, the original Las Vegas would be downtown. So on the strip, you had uh, the El Rancho and the uh, Last Frontier and uh, that was about it. You know, and the Flamingo was maybe, I don't know, a half a mile away. But, uh, yeah, you know, Ben did go over the top. But with his personality and his persona, that's what kind of, that's when the curve changed. You know, we went from Western casinos to, you know, a new sophisticated kind of a Miami style of a casino. And that's what kind of started all that, you know, the, the right. elaborate you know, flamboyant casinos that you have today. So, well, we all know what happened to uh, Ben. Got killed in Los Angeles. It was a hit, no question. Now, a lot of people claim that it was your grandfather that called for it, but I know he had said, as I as I recall, uh, you know, at the end of his life, that boy, he wishes he could have stopped that. Actually, that it wasn't necessary. Yeah, I don't. My grandfather wouldn't have given a heads up or anything to something like that. If that was the mob and nobody knows, it's actually, it's, it's an unsolved crime. But, um, and you know, you have to realize too, there's, there was a lot of bookies at the time that weren't real happy with Ben. He was charging them a lot more money and uh, just quite a few people. And, uh, yeah, he wouldn't have, they would have never told my grandfather that, that was coming down. Now I'm sure that he realized at one point that, uh, Ben was maybe, compromising himself with what he was doing. Right. He knew him since he was a kid, right? And uh, he also, uh, Ben knew what he was doing. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? So, <laughs> right. yeah, uh, 
if he was putting himself in jeopardy in any way, then boy, he's you know he paid the consequences. But I don't know. Um, I'm, my grandfather never gave an okay on anything like that. He would never have done that. You know, um, didn't, I don't didn't think seem that. to be his personality. His idea was no. always because all, obviously, and it did. It attracts a lot of attention, and his thought was, you want to stay underneath the. Uh, Underneath the telegraph, <laughs> you know, you don't want to have that out in in the papers right. and so forth. Yeah, like I said, it's an unsolved case, and you know, from what I've heard, I I don't really think it was. It looked very much like it was the mob, and they. But you have to realize they loaned him a lot of money, and to just assassinate him after that and not get their money back doesn't make a lot of sense. So, to me, it would have been like, look, we're not going to give you any more bad, sorry, and that would have been the end of it until you show a profit. But why would they keep giving him money and then oh, let's get rid of him? I mean, it just doesn't make sense, you know. But uh, <laughs> yeah. it could have been anybody. I mean, there was a lot of people that weren't real happy with it, you know, that at that time. So yeah. we don't know. <laughs> well, well, tell us a little about what you're up to because, you know, that's a big name to carry with you. But uh, you, you live in Vegas. You sound like you're enjoying yourself and so forth. Yeah. And, of course, it's kind of fun, I would think, at the same time to, to kind of be involved in that because people hear you. Plus, you probably get a lot of respect, too. Nobody's going to get to say anything to you because just, just in case they don't know you, you know, they don't want any trouble. <laughs> well, you know, I really enjoy living in Las Vegas. I, uh, Like I said, I'm affiliated with the Mob Museum, and now we have Bugsy and Myers Restaurant. It's been open over a year now at the uh, Flamingo, the yeah. historic spot of the Flamingo. I'm down there quite a bit. Uh, I've got people I take through the museum and the you know the flamingo that's from all over the world you know and it's been uh, wonderful hearing how big these fans have gotten you know I've got all the social sites I get the demographics changed it's it's quite interesting I've I've got uh, you know tattoos are a big thing now so I get people yeah. sending me their pictures of my grandfather on their leg and then Ben Siegel on the other leg. And they're from the Czech Republic, and they're like 25 years old. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that is that is really changed. It used to be like, you know, people 70, 60 years old that lived in New York or something. Now it's just worldwide. So uh, Let's talk a little about the, the steakhouse. I'm excited about this. I've heard nothing but good things. But unfortunately, timing wasn't great for this, right? You know, who knew a pandemic was coming? But Well, yeah, that kind of it's, – it's doing really well now. Um, Vegas is opening back up. The steakhouse is, uh, it was designed by Jonathan Adler. It's, it has a motif of the 1950s, late 40s, early 50s. Beautiful colors that, you know, flamingos and artwork. And you feel like you're walking back in that time period. There's a facade out front. You walk through the bakery, and then you go up, and you'll see the dried meat hanging. Kind of real similar to an original steakhouse in New York City, basically kind of that's what it was kind of based on. And uh, it has the uh, count room in the back, which is a beautiful speakeasy where they host what I do. I host parties uh, anywhere from four people at a happy hour to a, a party or a bachelor party or something. I talk about my grandfather and Ben Siegel. And you're on the historical property where everything took place. And there's the, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with the, uh, it's like, it's like the uh, Ferris wheel out in the back. I yeah, can't think right. Of the name of, sorry, <laughs> but you you go up in there and you can see the whole town and city and where Highway 91 was at one time and right. get an idea of what it looked like back in '47. You know, there was uh, 
there wasn't much there. It was just a lot of desert. Ben had purchased a lot of the land so he could build, uh, you know, later on. Yeah. And then upon his death, unfortunately, he said, oh, this isn't going to be worth anything, the executor of his will, and they just sold it off. But I can't imagine if they'd have hung on to that property. But, uh, you know, <laughs> he, he, he definitely saw something that other people didn't, so... Yeah, he really believed in Vegas, which is kind of a cool thing. And, you know, it's just such a part uh, of, of the whole vintage Vegas thing. I think people should go there. Plus, a great steakhouse uh, is a wonderful thing. And Vegas is still got some, but but it's great that we can always use more because there's a lot of these great restaurants come in with these chefs and so forth. We get away from some of that. And yet, if you're in Vegas, you want to go have a great steak. I mean, that's that's part of history. Well, the food's great, and also you're, uh, unlike most places, this is a real historical site any way you look at it because Ben Siegel was sitting right there when people would walk through the door, and uh, he was in his booth with his, with his phone, and, you know, during the week, he had bingo games to try to bring people out of the downtown area at the time, and, you know, a lot of the stuff he did that you see in the movies, he's footprints all over there you know so <laughs> it's interesting to walk around and then you know there's it's none of the original building is still there but i know quite a few of the spots where um he would be and you know where, where the hotel rooms were where his office was and what's there now and it's just interesting you can see, feel his ghost and presence around there definitely you know so that's, yeah. that's an interesting thing well we're definitely going to go there now before we get to the one last thing I want to talk with you about, if they want to go to the steakhouse, uh, is there uh, do you mean you go to the Flamingo website or do you uh, does uh, Bugsy and uh, Myers Steakhouse have its own uh, site? Well, it's on the Flamingo website, Bugsy and Myers, and uh, yes, you go to that and you make a reservation, and uh, that's all you have to do, and you're there. That's great. And, uh, it has a great day. Try the, sea, the seafood tower in the uh, 1640 onion soup is my favorite. <laughs> so there's some really good seafood and steaks, of course, and all types of different dishes. And of course, sitting it, in the middle of history. And of course, yeah, right. And you should go, if you haven't been to the Flamingo, you should go there. It's one of those places that's meant to be seen. Also, I understand you were writing a book. Yes, what, what, here's what we had. I've got 400 letters that I, uh, from my grandpa that were written to my dad. So we're going to uh, I'm going to use some of the letters in the book. I've also come up with an idea that instead of me just writing my story, I've got other people that were either family descendants of other families that tied into my grandfather and their story. So it won't just be mine. It'll be six, seven other stories of uh people that knew my, you know, their yeah. dad knew my grandfather and how they interacted. So, you know, it's, it's, it'll be more interesting that way, I think. And, uh, well, yeah, sounds get great. their story out there somewhat too, altogether. To have so. that intimate look and really it's a different way to look at it. I mean, you're a historian, but at the same time to have people that lived it, you know, and, and by living it, I don't mean it wasn't like you were there when he was doing these things or what have you, but it's just that those in the family, there's a, a a different feel for things, and I think it's always really in interesting. I interviewed the niece of Al Capone, and it was really interesting because she just had a different way of looking because she didn't see him as that. You know, she grew up, and it was right. Uncle Al, and he was a great guy as Uncle Al, you know. So was it's that always Deirdre? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, I know Deirdre. Yeah. <laughs> she was it's, great, it's, you know. It was a fun, it was. and it was a fun interview, but it was like, uh -huh. you know, you 
he does have some, uh, there's some negative things on the till too, but you know, she didn't want to talk about it and I kind of get it. And I no, think I know. you'll look at it, you know, it's funny. Well, if, okay. Well, oh, the, by the way, the name of the book, uh, or the proposed, I assume you're going to keep this title, the working title, I understand was we're bigger than us steel, which was something that Meyer said, one of the great wines uh, of all these mafia wines we were talking about. Yeah. Because that was a thing, and people didn't realize just how big it had gotten, and uh, I, th- I think that always really kind of kicked into people that you know this isn't just a guy you see uh, once in a while; it's way more than that. Oh yeah, they had uh, con- you know they were spiderwebbed into everything throughout the United States. They literally were given you know the liquor business and. They ran it, you know, they served liquor to the whole nation. It wasn't just New York and Chicago. I mean, people, when you go in the museum, that's another thing. You'll get people, oh, I thought it was just there and there. And it was throughout the whole country. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty massive, you know, and then they connected in with with the money they made. You know, they, they bought into, you know, uh, politicians and local law enforcement and trucking companies. It, it just went to everything, basically, unions. Uh, they had a lot of control over a lot of things. Yeah, they know, really so. did, you know. I'm a big yeah. fan of the Untouchables, and of course that's come from one direction. I mean, I, there's another person I talked to, the grandson of Elliot Ness, and then you find out no he kidding. was, yeah, well, he was really a terrific guy in terms of uh, different... He had a hard things. end, though. Yep, he sure, he sure did. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, and he wasn't the same guy that they showed. He wasn't Robert Stack, you know, but then again, no. <laughs> <laughs> different, different times, different times. Right. So if people want to follow you, Meyer, how can they do it? Because we want to keep track of when that comes out. We want to we want to go out and buy it. Well, let's see. It's uh, you can get hold of me on Meyer Lansky, official Meyer Lansky at gmail dot com. Oh, terrific! And then yep. uh, when when do you think the book will be released? Uh, another year? Oh, that'll be yeah, within a year. Within a year. Now, I didn't. Did you know we had a movie that just came out on my oh, grandfather? I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, let's talk about that. It just came out. So it's called right. Lansky. Uh, it's got it's Harvey Keitel. Yeah. Harvey Keitel played my grandfather at, a, at an older age. Uh, I met the uh, the writer about two weeks ago. And uh, nice guy from Israel. Um, his first movie. I thought it was really good. I think Harvey Keitel did a great job. It's on Amazon Prime, by the way, if anybody wants to. When, you want to watch it? It's on it. It's a it's a good movie. It's got a good theme to it. It's about a journalist that interviews my grandfather about writing a book at the end of his life. And actually, it, that was there was some truth to that. He was going to do that, and then he decided not to. Yeah. But uh, it kind of runs through that. Uh, there's a lot of artistic license, <laughs> you know. It's a sure. movie. Remember that. Um, but it's good. It's worth watching. It's it's it will add to the uh, long list of mob movies out there and. Uh, I hope everybody gets a chance to see it. But like I said, Harvey Keitel did a wonderful job. He's a great actor. He, it's Lansky. You know, yeah, great actor. He's Jewish. He was older. He, he, you know, he kind of absorbed pretty quickly who my grandpa was because of that connection. You know, so yeah, uh, very well done. So enjoyable. Well, well, and I guess that was a big deal too because that's something that nobody uh, in that world wants to see. You're not supposed to say anything, so it would have been a big deal if he'd have actually written something and s- spilled all the secrets, so to speak. Yeah, I don't... I think he, uh, you know, he gave one interview in his life on tape, if you've ever seen it. It's uh, in Israel, and he was regretful of even doing that, so, yeah, he wasn't one to 
say too much. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. Well, thank you very much, Meyer. we got to have mm-hmm. you on again as soon as you read that book. is ready to come out. We'll have you on. And, uh, okay. It was great talking with you. Thank you so much. What if every dollar you invested into your training program turned into $30 of revenue? What if your learning program was so engaging that your employees looked forward to annual trainings? And what if you could monitor the success and effectiveness of your curriculum with quantifiable metrics? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. E-learning has made each of these scenarios possible, utilizing tools such as virtual and augmented reality, simulations, and online instructor-led training provides a safe environment for employees to learn at their own pace. Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Here at Epsilon XR, we have 50 years of experience in creating powerful and effective training programs. We combine proven training methods with cutting-edge technology to create immersive training experiences. Are you ready to take your training program to the next level? Go to training.epsilonxr.com. Training.epsilonxr.com.